0: Amen. Thank you for sharing, Miss Betty. Obviously, we're not in a hurry, so it's okay to share. So, Uh, if we have any children, actually, we don't have children's church this morning. I was noticing there's nobody standing in the corner. Uh, It's the fifth Sunday of the month, which means that our kids are actually in service with us. I think it's a very healthy thing for our kids to be able to see uh, what happens in big church or in adult church. So sometimes it is nice to have things on their level, but I also think it's a blessing for them to be able to be with us in our services. It is a blessing to have each of you with us this morning as we close out this series that we've been working through entitled Recipe for Revival. My hope is that this series has pushed you intellectually, but more than that, my prayer is that it will serve as a catalyst so that you will actively do whatever it takes to experience a genuine revival in your life. And I'm not just talking about some passing whim where you think to yourself, "Well you know revival that, that would be kind of cool instead I'm talking about where you seek that above everything else. Can you imagine how different our world would be if we genuinely experienced revival? Our world, our community, our local church, and even ourselves. No doubt it would be something spectacular. Well, today as we look at revival, I want us to look back a little bit, to back up in the scriptures. I want us to read a short passage from 1 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. This passage addresses the people of Israel in a corporate manner, but within it, we see what needs to happen in a personal manner if we are to experience revival. We want corporately to experience revival. We like the idea of the entire church experiencing it But that doesn't happen unless individually, as individuals in the church, we experience revival. This is what it says. (coughs) Excuse me. And the men of Kiriath-Jerom came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eliezer, (coughs) to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines." So the people of Israel put away the bales and the ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. In this passage, we see that the Ark of the Covenant had been returned to Israel. They went through a time where it was no longer in their possession. And although the Ark of the Covenant had returned to Israel, Israel had not returned to the Lord. So Samuel calls on the nation of Israel to repent, to put away the foreign gods among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. The result would be that God would deliver them from the hand of the Philistines, at least according to Samuel. Israel had the ark back, but things were not really set right. Israel realizes that they are no more right with God just because they have the ark again. This would be like an individual finding their old family Bible and people feeling relieved that they have it. Then they set it on their coffee table and it sits there and it rests, never being opened. They may have the family Bible, but they are no more right with God than they were without it. So all all within the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. What does that mean? To lament, it's almost a sense of remorse. They had good reason to lament. Their cities were in ruin. Yes, they now have the Ark of the Covenant and they feel good about that, but it doesn't seem like anything has changed. Their armies are defeated. They were under Philistine oppression, all because they were not right with God. This lamentation, this lamenting was the best thing that they could do if they were going to experience revival. And This is the first thing that we must do as well, to look within, to lament after the Lord. Many times throughout the scriptures, we see such lamenting, but what is lamenting? It's not a word that we often use today, although it probably was a generation or two ago. One author called it the idea of being broken and feeling wretched because of one's circumstances in this case, that of being sinful, lost and separated from God. and I think that that's pretty accurate with where they were and probably where we need to be. Listen to the word of God on this in James chapter four, verse nine, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. It is the same feeling that's expressed by the tax collector, spoken of by Jesus, who was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. Remember, he he prayed, and as he prayed, he didn't want to, to look up. Instead, he beat his chest, realizing how wretched and pitiful he was, saying, God, be merciful on me, the sinner, Luke chapter 18. Matthew 5, 4, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And in 2 Corinthians 7, 10, Paul says, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Do you remember Peter? When he betrayed Christ, Peter had sorrow that produced godly repentance. In Matthew 26, Peter said, I swear by God, I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed and suddenly Jesus's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And you remember what he did? It says, and he went away crying bitterly. Now it should be noted That Peter's reaction is not all that different from that of Judas. They both went away and they wept bitterly. However, what you do with your grief also matters. Judas saw his failure and it consumed him to the point of death. Peter saw his failure and his faith had certainly slipped, but the battle was not over. Do you remember? Jesus's prayer for Peter, knowing that this was going to take place. In Luke 22, it says, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen the brothers. So Jesus knew what was to come, yet he prayed that Peter's faith Would not fail, realizing that the day would come for Peter to return to the Lord. And this brings us back to our original passage this morning. Verse 3 calls God's people to return to the Lord with all your hearts. And this is where we are introduced to the inward repentance. I told you that this is not just about a corporate revival. It's a great thing to seek, a corporate revival where everybody around us experiences it. But if it doesn't happen in here, it's not going to happen out there. It has to be inward first. It's what's talked about in Joel chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, where it says, That is why the Lord says, Turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. And Joel hit a home run on that one. There is so much in these verses that I could do an entire sermon just on these two verses. But listen to it again. Turn to me now while there is time. Listen, the opportunity to repent has been given. And although we are not promised tomorrow, today the opportunity is still here. So, take advantage of it. But it's not just what you do on the outside that matters. We talk about repentance, and sometimes the idea is, and by the way, this is biblically correct. An act of repentance is saying, I'm going this way, and I am going to turn around and go a different direction. It's a turning away. But sometimes we look at that as being an outward thing, but the truth is, it must begin inside. He says in Joel, give me your hearts. And a little later, he says, don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. What that means is that you can do everything right in the eyes of man. And we can all think that you look like a spiritual giant but God wants to see your heart changed too. And In case you're wondering, nothing changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament on this. In fact, it's been said that repentance should be the first word of the gospel, as it is the initial response called for by John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus in Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The 12 disciples in Mark chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus after his resurrection in Luke chapter 24, verse 47, Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Paul in Acts 26, 20, you get the point. The first word, the first call upon anyone is to Repent. That involves the outward turning away, but it also involves us examining our own hearts and recognizing that change needs to take place inside as well. And maybe what this requires for us today is for us to take a little time of self-examination. Not always an enjoyable thing to do, because what if I find something in me that's not very attractive? What if there's something in me that doesn't belong and God says, I need you to remove it? But Lamentations 3.40 says, let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. And through Ezekiel, the Lord says of the genuinely repentant man, Because he considers and turned away from all his transgressions, which he had committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Paul admonishes the Galatians, each one must examine his own work. And to the Corinthians, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you you not recognize this about yourselves? that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. But of course, just as revival has an internal component, there must also be an external component. And we see that it, we see that in our original passage today. In fact, verse three calls the people to action saying, put away the foreign gods among you. Now, I want you to note that the internal had to happen first. Yet the external confirms the internal transformation. James says, what does it profit, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. But do you want to know, oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. The idea here is that if you experience a transformation of the heart, if your life is being changed on the inside, there should be a natural outward expression of that. I'm not the same person on the inside, therefore I will do things different on the outside. Because God is transforming who I am. It just makes sense that if it's happening in your heart, it will translate into your actions. And I love the fact that Samuel tells the people that they are to not only put away the foreign gods among them, but that they are to serve the Lord only. I think one of the greatest disservices that we have done to folks is when we merely tell them to run from sin we should flee from sin. Don't get me wrong. That's good advice. But sometimes we fail to give them something to run towards. The scripture calls us to flee from sin, but it also calls us to draw near to the Lord. It's not enough to say, okay, I'm not going to do it. Remember the, I think it was Nancy Reagan, just say no. It's a great idea. What are you going to say yes to? We need to be teaching people to draw near to the Lord. Just so we keep this in its proper context, it's likely that the Israelites didn't truly feel that they were rejecting the Lord in the first place. We've talked about it recently, but they probably felt that it was okay because they weren't replacing God, but rather they were just adding to God. They still had their temple and they still took time to worship the Lord, but they decided they would also worship Baal and they would also worship with these Asherah poles. But God would never be okay with sharing his worship with others. Deuteronomy 6.4 says that the Lord, your God, the Lord, he is one. In that God is declaring that there is no room for another and in Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for he, either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Samuel was calling on Israel to turn their backs on these other gods and to serve him only know that those whom God has chosen to serve know that those whom God has chosen to serve will always have a constant track record of having hearts devoted to him that means that there's no room for these other gods look at it scripturally Nehemiah declared about Abraham you found his heart faithful before you and when Samuel searched for a successor to Saul the Lord reminded him that the Lord looks at the heart. First Samuel 16:7. Do not consider his height nor his appearance, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And godly king Jehoshaphat of Judah was blessed by God because he set his heart to seek God in 2 Chronicles 9:13. Did you know that did you know that Saul was chosen largely because he was, according to 1 Samuel 9, 2, a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. That turned out to be a disaster. Sure, there were moments that Saul did good things, but by the time Saul's reign was over, he was a disaster. He was trying to take the life of King David. He was one who sought evil spirits to try to find out what was going to take place to replace Saul. God raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Do you recognize the change there? Saul was picked because he looked good. Saul was picked because everybody else thought, you know what, this guy fits the model of what we want for a king. David was chosen because he was a man after God's own heart, and God had a plan for him. And God used King Josiah to lead a spiritual revival because his heart was tender, and he humbled himself before the Lord. And Ezra, according to Ezra 7.10, used by God because... He set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Of course, the reward for all this is God's blessing. And it doesn't mean that everything will be easy, but as the Israelites are being addressed by Samuel here, they know difficulty. They know what it is to suffer. They're suffering at the hands of the Philistines, and it's been going on for a while. But it does mean here, not that it will be easy, but whatever they face, God is going to be in their corner. As many of you know, my youngest son is playing football. I don't normally use my kids as illustrations, but this is a great illustration, so it's okay, and it fits very well. My son is playing football for the first time this year, and he does fairly well, especially considering the fact that He's never really played before. He's not the biggest kid on the team. In fact, I think Griffin's a little bit bigger than him on the team as well. But he is athletic. One night a couple of weeks ago, he was asked to block the biggest kid on our team. And let's just be honest the kid he's blocking is more than a handful. I watch him and I love to see him run over people and through people, and sometimes he'll grab them and just kind of toss them aside. Being one of the coaches on that team, I love to see that. But on this night, Michael shut him down. And after a while, this kid became frustrated with his inability to get by Michael. So he began playing dirty. He'd hit him after the play was over. He'd grab his face mask and try to throw him down. And I think the part that bothered Michael most, which is so humorous to me because he's so different from me. He's much more gentle and compassionate, and he takes things much more personal. I've told people before, I think when God gave out feelings, I was sick that day and I missed. Uh, It just seems like the compassion's not there. But for Michael, it it was a big deal. The kids started calling him names. After one of the plays, Michael came over to me and he was a little bit upset. He told me what had happened and I laughed. I told him that the proper response to that should have been, I'm sorry that I've made you look bad all night on every play. I know that probably wasn't the best advice. Uh, It did make Michael laugh and he got back over on the offensive line to get ready for the next play. Well, apparently the kid who plays, actually Griffin is on one side of of Michael, but the kid on the other side is a kid named Caesar, and he had been unaware of what had been taking place. He just happened to be one of Michael's best friends from school because they've been growing up together now for years, and he was listening to our conversation. This kid is probably the second biggest kid on the team. The first biggest one is the one that Michael was going against. When they lined back up for the next play, Michael's classmate, Caesar, laid this other kid out. I'm sitting there thinking, yes. <laughs> he then turned around, never said a word to Michael, patting him on the shoulder pads. Then they got back in line for the next play. As his dad, I was feeling pretty good at that moment. But then I also thought about how that mirrors what happens when we have God in our corner. Yes, we may get knocked down here and there, but God is fighting on our behalf, and he will take care of us. You can trust that no matter what you face today, you're not in this alone. You have a God who's going to be there for you. He desires to take care of you. And according to what Samuel says here to the Israelites, repent, turn from your sin that the Lord may bless you, that he will deliver you from the Philistines. Well, the last thing that I want to draw your attention to today is what happens in verses five and six. It's where the personal and individual becomes corporate. Listen again to these two verses. Beginning in verse five, then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Let me just point out, when it says he judged the people of Israel, it doesn't mean looking at you and saying, you got sin in your life, I need you to fix it. You got a different sin in your life, I need you to fix it. That's not the kind of judgment that we're talking about. He's going to guide them. The Spirit of God is going to use him to lead the people of Israel for a time. In these verses, we see that the religious leader, Samuel, we see him gathering the people together and then praying for them. People often ask, what is the value of the church coming together as one? And There are many answers to this question. On the one hand, we experience great fellowship with one another. I love when the church can get together and just act like family. We also work best when we do it together, as opposed to each individual trying to do it on their own, sometimes We're not as well gifted for that. God has made each of us in a very unique way, and the body of Christ works best when all the parts are working together. And of course, there is also an expectation of obedience. The book of Hebrews calls us to not forsake the gathering together of believers. There's an expectation that we will be the iron that sharpens iron that we will encourage one another in our walks with Christ. But we also see something in this passage. There is a benefit to us having our spiritual leaders pray over us. I referenced a verse in James last week where he instructs us to call upon the elders of the church to pray for us that we may be healed. Well, here we have Samuel promising to pray over God's people, praying for God's blessing and his protection. And before you leave here today, I would be honored to be able to pray for you. But there's one thing, one other thing in these verses. Verse six reveals the prayer that they offered to the Lord. This is the lamenting. It's confession. You can't offer this prayer unless you've looked within your own heart and recognized what is present. This was their prayer. We have sinned against the Lord. Notice that there is no room for blaming somebody else. You don't hear anybody taking partial credit. Well, I, I know I shouldn't have done it, but I only did it because, and you can add whatever other phrase you have there. Instead, they are owning their sin. They did it. And while it impacted many people, the actual offense was against God. Likewise, all of us have sinned. All of us have opened up the door at various times for compromise to come into our lives. And what has happened is too many of us have become comfortable within our sin to where that is just normal, and now we excuse it away. But the people of God prayed, Lord, I have sinned. I believe today that all of us have sinned, and maybe it's time for us to take ownership of our sin. Maybe it's time for us to come before the Lord with a heart of confession, asking him to change us, so that we won't have to keep going back to him for the same sins. You remember Fonzie on Happy Days? Young people, it's actually a show that used to be on TV. In his case, he was really good at a lot of things, but there was one thing in particular he was really bad at, saying he was sorry, saying he was... He couldn't get the word wrong out. But confession is the only way to a free and joyful life. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. My guess is that some of us today need to take a moment and confess where we have allowed sin to exist. John Stott, theologian, said, One of the surest antidotes to this process of moral hardening is the disciplined practice of uncovering our sins of thought and outlook, as well as word and deed, and the repentant forsaking of them. Let's uncover our sins before the Lord and allow him to have his way in us. If you would, bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you, we first ask that you would reveal within us where we have allowed sin to exist and remain. We know that it does not belong. Father, we have allowed compromise to take place We're not pointing the finger at anyone else today. We're looking within our own heart. Father, we have allowed compromise to take place. There are things that we do that we know are contrary to your word, and we've justified it because while we're still Christians, we still go to church, we still pray, we've justified it because other people are doing it as well. But the truth is that compromise is sin. It is less than what you intended for your people. So we come before you today, and we confess that we have fallen short. Lord, where sin has abounded, Lord, I pray that right now you would completely remove it, remove the consequence, remove the tendency toward it. Father, I pray that from this moment forward, we would live as those who truly are being transformed, that we would be changed. Lord, let the sins of the past remain in the past, and let us now walk as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that as we surrender our lives to you, as we experience this inward repentance, Lord, I pray that you would also do an external change in us. Father, help us to act as those who have been redeemed. Let the rest of the world see that we're different today than we were yesterday. Lord, I pray today that you would empower us to go boldly into our world proclaiming what you have done in us. And I do pray for your blessing. Lord, I pray for your blessing on every individual in this church. There are some who are dealing with physical issues right now, and they are in pain even sitting in this service. There are some who are in this service concerned about things that are coming up in the coming days. Lord, you are our only hope. So we pray right now for your blessing to rest upon us. I pray whatever physical ailments we may be dealing with, whether it be individuals with COVID or individuals with cancer or individuals with heart problems or gout or whatever it may be, I pray that you, as the great physician, would allow your hand to rest upon us that we would experience... Your blessing today. but We know that life is about much more than just the physical. Sometimes those physical things happen because we need them. Or sometimes we need to go through difficulty for us to recognize who you are and where you are and how much you love us. But I thank you for those moments when it seems out of our control because those are times that we tend to lean more on you for help. Lord, I pray today that you would bless your people, whether it be physical in nature, financial in nature, relationships, or whatever it is. Lord, I pray today that you would bless us and help us to faithfully serve you. Lord, I am thankful today that I have a God to call upon. Lord, may you be honored in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My hope and my prayer is that you will take the blessing of God. You know, the greatest blessing of God is not when he touches you physically. It's really cool when it happens. The greatest blessing of God is not when you look in your bank account and there's more money there than what you expected to be there. Again, it's great when it happens and we get excited about it. The greatest blessing of God is when he took away our sin And he gave us the hope and the promise of eternal life. Live like you've been blessed. I want you to know I'm going to pray for you even after we leave here. Not just today, but as your pastor, I pray for you all the time. Sometimes it is just good to know someone is praying for you. I want you to know today that I am praying for you. And I believe God is going to provide for every single need. You are a blessing to me. Thank you for being a part of our service. Next week, we'll start a new series. And hopefully, it will bless you as much as this one has blessed me. So thank you for being with us this morning. Go in peace.